Today's episode of The Andy Staple Show is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to Robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not an investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations. Annual percentage yield on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show Decision 2020. No, not not that decision, 2020. Tua Tonga Bailoa's decision. As we're recording this, it is Sunday. Tua is scheduled to announce at noon Eastern whether he will be going to the NFL or staying in Tuscaloosa. We bring in our expert in Tuscaloosa, Aaron Suttles. Aaron what do you think is going to happen? What do you think Tua is going to say when he gets up there? Uh, man, this has been so so weird, Andy. Like you asked me a month ago, there's no decision to be made. He's he's got to go pro. But uh, there was so much optimism uh, in Orlando last week um, amongst a bunch of these guys, and I always cautioned all the Alabama fans who were getting really excited. I said, be careful because it's an emotional time. You know, these guys are some of them are playing their last game. They're they're like sort of this team, sort of this family, and they're in they're on an emotional high. And, and sometimes when you're an emotional high, your emotions get the best of you, and and you might make some indications or some decisions that you haven't thought through in the light of day. And then when you get home, and people are in your ear, and, and reality hits, and you remember how hard that, that fall camp is, and and all the grueling stuff you got to do throughout the season, uh, maybe another season hits. I I would have told you, and I and I wrote this. Um, coming out of the the Citrus Bowl win over Michigan, Tua had made indications to a lot of people, not just Tua, but his family, to where a lot of people at Alabama felt very optimistic. Um, that optimism today is is um, much more subdued, uh, is is because normally with a press conference at Alabama, that means a guy is going pro. But all the all the guys that have announced that they're going pro this year, Andy, they've already announced. I mean, we're still waiting on Henry Ruggs, and I expect Henry Ruggs to go pro as well. But Xavier McKinney announced today. Uh, yesterday it was Jerry Judy. Uh, we've seen uh, Jedrick Wills. So those guys aren't going to be – there is no press conference. So two is really the only guy that there's a press conference for this year. And traditionally at Alabama, a press conference means you're gone. But Tua is so high, so, so high profile, it might be to announce he's coming back. But if you had to ask me right now, I'd say 75-25 I'd say he's going pro. Well, it's interesting. The, the one that, that got me, and this is probably – I think it was right around when you wrote this, Aaron. It was the domino tweet from Alabama's official Twitter account because Alabama is not a program given to stuff like that. Like they they tend to underpromise and overdeliver at Alabama. So when Dylan Moses says he's coming back the first time, we'll we'll get into the machinations of that later. But when Dylan Moses says he's coming back the first time, and Alabama sends out the tweet of the dominoes falling, I'm thinking, oh Lord. They, they, 
they're thinking Tua's coming back. Tua's telling people he's coming back. This is this is crazy. But what you mentioned, you know, in the light of day, when you when you get people in here, when you get uh, away from that team environment, what do you think? You know, information has been given to Tua. What's been passing back and forth? You know, as he mulls this decision over. Well, I know for a fact he he went to New York. Um, and he went with um, one of the surgeons from Alabama. He went with uh, a high-ranking Alabama athletic department official, and they took the private plane to New York, and they met with, for lack of a better term, an NFL doctor. It's not an, it's not an NFL doctor as if he's on the NFL payroll, but it's, it's the doctor up there um, that teams are, are comfortable with, and he sort of gives an evaluation. And it, it, it's the type of person you'd see at the Combine. During the medical yeah, exactly. right? Yeah, uh, exactly. So they took them up there to provide them with the information. Um, that way, it's not it's not in Alabama, it's not in Birmingham. There's there can be no um, no misunderstandings about what information he was given. He was being given independent information. And my understanding is that you know they're basically where he thought he was. He's not ahead of schedule. He's still got a ways to go in in his recovery and his rehabilitation. And that's the information he was given. So that's the that was the final piece of uh, information he, he he needed before he made this decision. I know he met with Nick Saban today. He probably informed Nick Saban of his whatever that decision is, and that's why that press conference was was called today. Because as of uh, as of Saturday, as of Friday, there was no plans for a press conference. So uh, this is sort of off, on the off the cuff today. And, you know, Andy, Alabama was really caught off guard with this. No one, and I mean no one, expected Tua Tonga-Valoa back. And I'm not saying they were ill-prepared for it because, um, you know, they'll, they'll find a way. But in the back of their minds, they, they're human, and, and they know what was going to be written next year. They know how they would be criticized if, if it played out like the last two years for Tua. If he had any kind of injury that next year, and I mean any kind of injury, it's going to be Nick Saban is um, – is a horrible person for convincing him to come back. And they were very aware of the sort of backlash that might fall at their feet should he come back and should he get another injury. So not that they not that, that influenced them that they didn't want him back. They just weren't going to be in a position. They they truly are taking a hands-off. We're going to give you the information. We're going to find you the best doctors. And trust me, Alabama has incurred a lot of costs, as they should, for, for his health since this happened. Uh, the surgery in Houston and, and now the – the flight and stuff up to New York, they should incur that. But they they have gone out of their way to give this family sort of hands-off information. This is what we know. This is what the NFL will tell you. You guys make your decision. So either way, whatever happens tomorrow, Alabama did not influence that one, one bit at all. Well, I, I was thinking about this because I was talking about this with somebody on the radio the other day. I don't recall Nick Saban ever telling anyone who was going to be a top 10, top 5, top even top 15 type pick to come back. Ever encouraging that. It, it seems like he's always said, if you're top 15, go. So I, I look at Tua's situation, and yes, he's injured. Yes, there are a lot of question marks in terms of his future and his health. But I also look at the quarterback class. Okay, Joe Burrow's going number one. He's a Cincinnati Bengal. Who's the second quarterback off the board? I think if if I feel like Tua Tungavailoa can be healthy by 2021, I'm probably still taking him over Justin Herbert, even if I need a quarterback right now. So that's the part that I just don't – I can't fathom how he drops below 10. Yeah, I'm with you. And I've been saying all along, and Andy, we're sort of along the same lines on it. If you've made a determination that – with the injury and you've done your due diligence that 
due diligence that you think Tua is a franchise type guy. If you if you feel that way, why do you care if he sits every game of 2020? I mean, if if he's your guy, and I don't know the new collective bargaining agreement. I've I've heard some rumors that the guaranteed contracts are going to go from four years with a fifth a fifth optional for NFL teams to now a four-year to shorten that deal so the players can get to their second contracts quicker. I, I'm not well-versed on that. Well, if that happened, uh, there would be a freebie year for the guys who are trying to decide whether to go pro from college because yeah, yeah. It, for, for, the, for those people in that one year when it changed, it wouldn't matter whether you went out this year or next. But I don't think, that, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. So that's not something you can bank on. Yeah, but if, if you're one – teams take – they go out on limbs every year for quarterbacks because it's so important at that at the game of football that you have a quarterback. And if you've made a determination that Tua is that kind of guy, why do you care if he sits six games or eight games or 12 games? You're still going to have him for four more years after that. And if you've determined he's your franchise guy, you don't, you don't care about his first rookie year. Well, and, and also, let's take a team like the Chargers. Now, given the way Phillip Rivers acted, I, I, it sounds like he thinks it's over. But what if, what if they could convince him to come back for another year and you do kind of what the Chiefs did with Pat Mahomes, except not from a schematic standpoint or a maturity standpoint, but for a health sta- from a health standpoint where you, you say, Philip, can, can you do one more year and, and we'll take Tua and then he's ready to roll in 2021? Because that's what I don't, I don't, if he comes back to Alabama, is he going to play? That, that's my question. Yeah, and that's something I, I put out there a couple weeks ago on a podcast uh, on my podcast, Second and Twenty Six, is if if he wants to come back, come back and let him let him just sit out a year and rehab and finish his uh, finish his degree. Alabama would absolutely do that. You incur no risk, and you can prove that you're you know go back the next year and that your hip is one hundred percent healthy. Now you didn't play, so you won't have any film on that. But film's not really the issue. I guess the issue for two is making sure that the, his play doesn't drop because of the injury. And if you can in any way show that, um, then that's something he would consider. But, you know, I just think quarterback is such a such a prime position that there are more than one team, and I mean more than one team in the first round, who will quote-unquote reach for an injured Tua Tungvaloa or rehabbing Tua Tungvaloa because they think he's the guy. Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing. There's a, It's a FOMO, the fear of missing out on a, on a franchise quarterback in the NFL. And I think part of it also, Aaron, you look at the other quarterbacks in the draft, I think Justin Herbert could be good. He has all the physical tools and the, and the big arm, but then, then it, it let's, if we take two out of the equation, so Burrow's out, Herbert's picked the next guy's who Jordan love, maybe Jake Fromm if he goes pro, uh, maybe mean, Jake Eason. I don't know what people Jake think Beeson. of him. He's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's, there's no sure thing. And basically what I, that gap I just mentioned, you dropped into the second or third round at that point. And Absolutely. So if you're a franchise that needs a QB now, and the thing is if you take Tua now and you sit in for 2020, I don't think your fan base is going to be all that upset about it. I think that they're, they're going to be understanding this is a weird injury. You know, all of us, we only think of Bo Jackson when we think of this kind of injury. So to, the idea that he's going to be able to come back and play potentially in 2020 I feel like is great news considering the severity of the injury. No, I, I agree. And I think, you know, he's progressing fine. He's just not, um, he's not progressing fast enough where they're, they feel confident to, to secure an NFL team with a top 10 pick that there are no issues. Um, and so my understanding is, is 
they've gotten some feedback from the first team team first ten teams picking that um, that he would not be a guaranteed top ten selection. But who cares? I mean, a, a trade a team could easily trade up into the top ten. And, and for Tua and his family, I think it's always been top fifteen um, that they've done the math on, and they want that sort sort of secured guaranteed money. But I think it'll be there. I, I was completely caught off guard. I, I didn't buy into the hype until I got down to Orlando, and I'm talking to people who know, and they're just like, they're they they weren't 100, percent but they're like, right now, it's surprising us. But yeah, we think he's coming back, and and now, I think now after the meeting with the NFL doctor, they're sort of a little more subdued and a little more reserved. So I guess we'll uh, we'll all be shocked. But if I had to guess now, given the fact that there's a press conference and probably me trying to read too much into it. I would sort of be leaning to think he's going pro. So let's talk about what we know is going to happen in Alabama next year because uh, Dylan Moses has said he's coming back, and then his dad said, wait, wait, no, he hasn't made that decision yet. And then Dylan's like, no, I'm I'm coming back. Uh, Alex Leatherwood, the the left tackle, is coming back. Uh, Jedrick Wills is leaving. Uh, Who who else is leaving? Jerry Judy's leaving. Am I missing somebody there? Yeah, Jerry Judy, Xavier McKinney is announced. I expect soon we'll hear that that, uh, Henry Ruggs III is leaving. Uh, Najee Harris, I can't remember if Najee's announced or not, but he'll be leaving. And so uh, that, that's where it sits. And I think the only one that, that we're really waiting on from a junior perspective would be Devontae Smith, and I, I think he's coming back. That would be a big – I mean, a Devontae Smith-Jalen Waddle-led receiving core next year is still one of the best receiving cores in college football. Oh, yeah, completely. And then you throw John Mechie in, who's, who's a freshman this year, who – obviously wasn't on the level of those three juniors in, in Jalen Waddle, but he'll be the next guy up. So they, they've got a solid core that, that either Mac Jones or if it's five-star Bryce Young coming in, we'll have to work with without without question. Now, I'm interested because Alabama, given the injuries they dealt with, Dylan Moses especially, but they had defensively a situation where they were very, very young this year. It strikes me that if, if the quarterback situation gets figured out, and, and I'm with you, I, I don't think it's it's Tua, and even if Tua's there, there's no banking on him playing. But if, if it's Mac Jones or let's say Bryce Young beats him out, the offense feels like it's it's solid, and then defensively a big step forward just because of maturity. Just, just the fact that they have someone in the middle, Andy, that can get somebody lined up. And it's still crazy that we're talking about Alabama and they're they're having so many issues with fundamentals. But I mean, they really had issues on on two guys being in the same run gap or two guys taking one guy on a, on a quarterback read option and letting Bo Nix walk into the end zone in the Iron Bowl. And you're talking about yeah, they're true freshmen, but they were playing in their twelfth game of the year. These guys have now played a full season of college football, and it took until halftime to to stop getting just absolutely demolished on the ground against an average Michigan offense. And so Alabama had has issues on defense. And I know there'll there'll be an, an entire examination from the defensive coordinator to down to the defensive line coach. They've got to get better in the front seven. Uh, I don't think that they've they've obviously taken they, there were two years in, in 2017, 2018 where their defensive line class was not very good. And I think it's showing. I think they made some uh, some improvement in the 2019 class in 2020. But you were those were those guys were freshmen this year. So when you had freshmen on on in front and then a freshman in the middle, that's two two of the three layers of your defense or the levels of your defense where you got true freshmen and they were making freshman mistakes. And the thing that's frustrating for Nick Saban is they're making freshman mistakes in the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth game of the season. And so, you know, what gives? But I, I agree, Dylan Moses will correct a lot of that. 
Now you got to find a leader on the back end of your defense with Xavier McKinney gone, but I think front seven, they'll be much better next year. So this is a theory that I've had, and we've talked about this a little bit, but it does feel like with the rise of Clemson, with Kirby Smart at Georgia, now with what Ed Orgeron is doing at LSU, Alabama has sort of been slowly picked off one or two players at a time from the period where they really could select anybody they wanted. How much has the pack kind of and and let's let's be honest, Clemson is either even with or ahead of Alabama over the last four years, and then you've got the rest of the pack in the SEC. It, it feels like they've closed the gap a little bit on Alabama. Oh, they have, and just look at the results on the field. I mean, Georgia hadn't gotten those wins, but they've outplayed Alabama two two games in a row, and the, the national championship game in seventeen, and then SEC title game last year. Georgia outplayed Alabama. They just didn't win at the end of the day for some different reasons but um you you know there's something in probably a a story to be written nick saban is great and i think nick saban would even tell you this um nick saban doesn't think of himself as the greatest x's and o's guy Uh, now he's certainly good and he's got a a very well-earned reputation in the defensive secondary and working with with corners and his defense but i don't think he would ever argue that he's the greatest x's and o's coach what he's always said and what he takes pride in is he's the best recruiter so anytime you have a, a anytime that the 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 I guess the chasm is closed a little bit in terms of the talent, that's that's the teams that give Alabama the most trouble because they can go toe to toe athlete wise with Alabama, and then it just becomes a a poise thing, a discipline thing, and then obviously an X's and O's thing. So um, I, I'm still I, I want to see more from LSU, and not that I listen LSU fans don't don't come at me. I, you guys have had a great year. And deservedly so. You guys have been phenomenal this year. But it took the the Heisman Trophy winner, the Bolitnikoff winner, the Thorpe Award winner, the Joe Moore Awards, the head coach of the year, to beat Alabama by five in which Alabama wasn't very good. Now, I know that game was in Tuscaloosa, but my, my point being, it was a gimpy Tua. You guys had all those weapons, and it was still a, a, a you know a one-score game. So I, I want to see them do it with – without Joe Burrow, and I think they can because they've always had the, the weapons. Uh, but I'm, I, I still think that's a series that's going to be really good going forward. I don't know that LSU has inched ahead yet. They might, but we'll, I'm going to wait that play out a little bit. But Clemson, I think, is ahead of Alabama. I think oh, Georgia's yeah. right there with Alabama. So I, I think there's a point to be made there that the teams that that have the same amount of talent as Alabama have played better or have matched Alabama the last two times they've played them. Well, the LSU question is interesting because, yeah, is it repeatable without Joe Burrow? Uh, my guess is to a point, but you, maybe not as as good as with Joe Burrow. Uh, Clemson answered that question, though, because their question was, is it repeatable without Deshaun Watson? And, and the answer, of course, was an emphatic yes. And that's hard. That's what makes this so hard and what what made what Alabama did over a 10-year period so amazing was they kept repeating it over and over again no matter who left it is a, a little weird honestly watching them be more like a normal team where you have some down periods like this year when the two middle linebackers get hurt and all of a sudden everything changes uh that did not used to affect Alabama but their depth has been affected by the rise of Clemson and the rise of Georgia and the rise of LSU. I, I want to explore one thing before I let you go that you mentioned earlier, where you, you talked about Nick Saban making an evaluation of his defense, of his defensive coaching staff. Uh, this is a situation, you know, going back to all that massive coaching attrition of a few years ago, 
What do you think needs to happen on that side of the ball? Uh, you know, it's a weird question because I'm very respectful of coaches that currently have jobs and their families, but there's also the reality of that, that kind of comes with it. I think there are some coaches on at least one, maybe two, on the defensive side of the ball that won't be there next year. I think um, I think there's a desire to get some coaches back in there that have a, a familiarity with the way Nick Saban does things that um, that that are elite recruiters. I think getting South and Surrey back last year was a huge step in that direction. Um, but I think there's a, a guy out there that Nick Saban would love to get back on his staff, and, and we'll see. You know, sort of where that goes but in terms of Pete Golden I don't know um I've taken a beating for even defending him and on on social media and, and when I defended him all I said is he's he's not he's not garbage he's not trash you don't get to where you are in this profession if you're garbage or trash but I, I know fans get emotional and they use hyperbolic language but simply me me defending him saying that he's not horrible Alabama fans just they, they don't want to hear it and now is, is the argument can turn to well not being not horrible doesn't get you the Alabama job. And there's a point there. I mean, you have to, Alabama's defense has fallen off tremendously since Jeremy Pruitt left. And I think part of that is talent, you know, losing, you know, some of the guys that, that Jeremy Pruitt had some of the leadership, Rashawn Evans, Sean Dion Hamilton there at those inside linebacker spots. And it's just, it's taken, it's taken some depth away from it. And I think when you talk about staff, Andy, what's particularly interesting, if you watch the Nick Saban, Bill Belichick documentary, Nick Saban talks about it. He's, he's happy when his guys go on and get jobs. He doesn't love it when they cherry-pick his staff. And I don't I don't know that you can stop that. You can't stop guys from getting opportunities to advance in their career, and I don't know how you really hold it against them, but Nick Saban seems to be a little agitated at that. And if you know more of his guys start getting jobs, they're going to come for guys they're, they're comfortable working with. And oftentimes that was behind-the-scenes guys at Alabama. Um, and that's certainly hurt the – the overall strength of the organization. Uh, I mean, take a guy like Brian Niedermeyer at, at Tennessee, who's national recruiter of the year last year. He was a behind-the-scenes guy at Alabama that Jeremy Pruitt recognized and took. Um, same thing with Glenn Schumann at Georgia. Kirby recognized him, took him from behind the scenes. So it's not just your on-the-field coaches. It's the guys that maybe the average fan doesn't know behind the scenes that have been a real value to Nick Saban's organization. Yeah, the bench isn't as deep because they keep getting really high-paying jobs somewhere else with with a lot of, little higher profile. You're right about that. Aaron, I can't wait to read what you write off this press conference. We, we got your lean. I tend to agree with you. But who knows? Tua may shock us. I, I, I will be waiting with bated breath. It will be fun. If he comes back, uh, college football will be fun in 2020 because he's such an electric personality that even if you don't like Alabama, I've, I've gotten the sense he's become a sympathetic figure since his hip injury that people who, even people who are tired and sort of saturated with Alabama are rooting for Tua. So it's going to be a fun to see what he does. All right. Noon Eastern tomorrow. Decision 2020. Tua Tungavailoa. We'll see what happens. Thank you, Aaron Suttles. All right, man. Take care. joined now by will salmon who covers the florida gators for us here at the athletic but in a previous life he covered mississippi state for the clarion ledger in jackson mississippi and will as a former stark vegas resident i I have many questions about the situation at mississippi state and you know john cohen the athletic director there very well uh knew joe moorhead covered those guys and you know 
Mississippi State fires Joe Moorhead on Friday. They're now in the midst of a coaching search. I'm curious, uh, from from what you gathered talking to people and, and, and your background there, what exactly happened between the Egg Bowl and, and Friday that made it where Joe Moorhead goes from, you're going to have to drag my Yankee ass out of here, to them dragging his Yankee ass out of there? They did. And it certainly does feel like a lifetime ago, like you mentioned, just because, man, things changed so so quickly over there. They go from hiring Joe Moorhead in November 2017 to not just shortly over two years later, he, he's gone. And to the question of just what happened in between the Egg Bowl, where, like you mentioned, he had that press cop, conference, a lot of bravado there, um, fielding some questions about his job security with the utmost confidence to then losing his job. You know, after a bowl game, no less, where we just don't see that happen too too often. It's really uh, a weird set of circumstances when that sort of situation comes to life where a coach loses his job after a bowl game. Um, but it, it wasn't necessarily the, the loss. I don't think that really had much to do with it. It was just more off-the-field stuff that just was not a good reflection of a disciplined program, which Mississippi State was under Dan Mullen. Now, that was really like their hallmark, I thought. When you watch the Bulldogs play, you expected to see a team that was pretty tough, hard-nosed. They were going to pretty much give it their all uh, for those four four quarters. And if you're the new guy, you can get away with some of that. You don't have to be that guy. You don't have to be who you're following. But you can't when you're losing games. So I think it was a combination of certainly didn't win enough games, didn't win enough of those bigger games, uh, particularly against Florida. That Auburn, that Auburn game last year wasn't good to watch from an offensive standpoint, but it was really the off-the-field stuff. Uh, before this season, they had, I think it was 10 players suspended uh, for academic reasons, um, or a handful of guys suspended that had to miss a bunch of games. That impacted them, I think, more than they thought it would, particularly defensively. Um, so they had that issue occur. And then during the bowl, during bowl prep, all, uh, linebacker Willie Gay got into a fight with uh, the quarterback, Garrett Strader, who was the freshman starting quarterback, the guy, uh, the quarterback suffers, I think, some uh, an eye injury or a yeah, bro- broken oral bone, I believe. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you know, you know, as much as as much as anybody, Andy, that that type of stuff happens. Like, not that type of stuff in particular, yeah. but players getting fights in practice. Yes, yeah. that's true. People, you know, um, teammates antagonize one another. Whatever happens, but that sort of extreme, that that sort of thing is kind of an extreme. And and the kid didn't play in the game. And so that was just a just bad reflection of, like I said before, just an undisciplined team. And you saw that on the field, where they had a bunch of false starts um, in critical moments, uh, false starts to start the game. I mean, that's just or, or delay of game penalties, that sort of thing. It's just just weird. Um, and if you look at it, it was just another instance again where, you know, you had all those all those days to prepare for a game, and I don't want to say they weren't ready because they actually had a lead. It was fourteen nothing at one point in that game. But they certainly didn't look prepared to play four quarters, um, and they certainly weren't prepared to kind of withstand whatever Louisville threw at them afterward. So that was a trend in Joe Moorhead's tenure there, where if he was coming off of a bye or if he had time to prepare, I think they were 0-5. So that was another thing that kind of came to light. But it was really the stuff off the field. I think mm-hmm. John Cohen mentioned it during his press conference. He didn't add a whole lot of detail to it, but he did bring up the fact that it was more than just the, the fight, it was more than just the guys who were suspended to start the season because of the academic situation. There were other things that he did not get into detail about during his press conference. 
but um, it all it all adds up to the same thing. It felt like they got off on the wrong foot Moorhead's first year because I think Mississippi State people thought that was going to be Dan Mullen's best team there. And obviously Florida and Tennessee were coming after Mullen pretty hard. He was probably going to leave, and then he did. But I think the the folks in Starkville thought, okay, here he's gift-wrapped this really good team for you. It was at three first-round picks on the defense, Kylan Hill. I mean, a lot of, of very good players. Nick Fitzgerald was a senior and then they, it didn't seem like Joe Moorhead figured out how to win with those guys until later in the season. And, and that, it seemed like that was the beginning of the end right there. And, and, you know, people never let up on him. But I am curious, Will, what was the decision-making process going into the Egg Bowl? Because obviously, you know, there were people who said, well, you know, if Greg Schiano doesn't want Rutgers, he should just take Rutgers and go. Uh where were Miss, where was Mississippi State's administration on Joe Moorhead going into the Egg Bowl? Yeah, I think that he was um, obviously he was Joe Co- uh, John Cohen's guy, and uh, John Cohen obviously is a, a very smart athletic director. Uh, previously, was a baseball coach at Mississippi State, cares about the school a lot clearly, and he hired Joe Moorhead. He did so pretty swiftly, although he did do some background on him because like you mentioned, Andy, it, it was not unexpected that Dan Mullen was leaving Starkville when he did. Uh, that was something that John Cohen was very prepared for. And so he, it wasn't, although like the timeline may suggest that it was a very quick move to hire Joe Moorhead at the time in November, 2017, he did some background. It was just swift in the way things unfolded where, okay, Mullen left a couple of days later, Moorhead's in Starkville. But, um, no, I mean, he was well-liked by administrators and by the president of the school. I, I think everybody had a lot of respect for Joe Moorhead, the person. But I felt like just from talking with people close to the program that there were some people who were divided, who were on the fence on, you know, is this the right guy for us? And then once, like you mentioned, the way the season ended last year, I think they could have lived with that if they saw improvement in year two, and I don't think they really did um, to the extent of, okay, this is a more disciplined team. This is the guy who's figuring it out. I don't know if anybody was really sold on that. Um, And then you add in all the -the off-the-field stuff anyway. So he was already on sort of, I don't want to say thin ice, but again, I'm I'm just trying to say that in that athletic department, I'm not sure, or I know for sure actually, that not everybody was sold on him being the guy. And, And clearly at the end of the day, John Cohen, wasn't either. Um, and, and John Cohen decided to make that change, convinced the president that, hey, this is what we have to do uh, for the future. Because I, I just don't know if they ever were going to see that Joe Moorhead was going to get over that hump in, in Starkville. I, I just don't see it. I just don't think that they saw it. And so, like you mentioned before in discussing previous coaching searches or, or coaching decisions where they end up firing the guy, if they're not going to see it, you know, four weeks from now, get it over with now, or for two years from now, or next year, do it now, you know, fix it now. And so I think that's what they decided to do. And like you mentioned before, it, it just started off very, right, pretty rocky and it never got any better. So yeah, you do make the change in that situation. There's a guy who used to be the athletic director at the, at the school you cover now at Florida named Jeremy Foley. And one of his most famous quotes, what may, what must be done eventually must be done immediately. That, that was Jeremy's attitude. So uh, it is, it, it, you, you, you see that a lot. Now, it, 
I did want to ask you a little bit about the Gators because uh, you covered the Orange Bowl last week. Uh, win against Virginia. It was one of those. It was a, a tight game, probably a little tighter than, than people thought it would be. But Florida goes 11-2 and in Dan Mullen's second season. They went 10-3 and in his first season. It's a very good start for Dan Mullen in Gainesville. But obviously, it's Florida. That means the next step is everybody expects him to start winning SEC titles. Do you think they can make that leap after two really good years under Dan Mullen? I do, and and you're absolutely right, Andy. It, it has to it has to happen. I think in year three, and what I mean by it is they have to beat Georgia. I mean it, it's it's now where that's become what the absolute goal has to be for Florida in 2020, uh, because they've gotten to the point now where. All these things that have occurred, they're great. They're, they're pretty much outstanding, too, especially when you look in the context of what they were before Dan Mullen's arrival. And so to get them to back-to-back New Year's Six Bowls, win both of those games, have the recruiting going upward in an upward trajectory like it is, it's all great. But they need to beat Georgia, and that's what's separating Florida from reaching the SEC championship game and ultimately getting beyond that and into the college football uh, playoff conversation in a serious way they're on the cusp they're right there i believe that they can get there in 2020 they're building a pretty solid roster right now um they have a good group coming back they got to fill some holes like everybody else but um they have the coaching staff in place at the moment at least where uh they have a lot of um a lot of comfort um a lot of continuity there so it's a very stable program in that respect and like I mentioned before, they have the personnel, and um, they, they seem to be adding to it in a big way, particularly in the transfer market. So let me let me ask you one more thing before you go, and it's about the quarterback situation, because I think people who look at it from the outside will say, okay, it looks like Kyle Trask is the guy. Emory Jones was was that guy that, that Florida signed right as Mullen got the job. Uh, he had been committed to Ohio State. He was a, a pretty sought-after quarterback prospect. He's been used kind of in a package situation at Florida, very similar to the way Florida switched off with with Chris Leak and Tim Tebow, Tebow's freshman year. Um, I think from the outside, it looks like, you know, Emory Jones would be a, a big transfer candidate, but everybody I talked to at Florida seems very comfortable with the idea that, that Emory Jones is going to be around, going to compete with Kyle Trask this, this offseason, and that they find a way to use both of them if they have them both. Yeah, same. that's exactly what I'm hearing as well. And I had I had one person from from inside the program put it to me this way when I asked about you know how worried are you about that um, exact thing that you mentioned the Emory Jones transferring possibly transferring and the way it was described to me was first of all it doesn't make that much sense just because you're going to have to sit out anyway probably if you were to, if you were to decide right to and he can graduate after this year and, and then do it anyway probably yeah so that yeah, I mean, that does yeah. change things a bit yeah exactly so it's like, but. But still, you're you're probably going to be waiting a year if you do if you decide to do it now. Um, and so it's like it, that that part of it doesn't make sense. But also the other part of it too is that I wouldn't be I, I would be surprised if it's not a a competition for that starting job in the spring, and if it's not opened up in that fashion. Now Dan Mullen's going to say it anyway that it's a QB competition, and whether or not it is or isn't in reality, it may be a different story. But I feel like it probably should be just because. You sign a guy who's a blue chip QB. This is his third year in the program. He better be ready at this point. I mean, this is a guy that you looked at, recruited, analyzed. I believe Dan Mullen and Brian Johnson were actually the first people to ever offer the kid anyway, uh, way back when. And so this is somebody that you looked at a long time ago, and he should be ready by now, and he feels ready for that matter, Emory Jones. 
Um, so I, I expect it to be more of a competition probably than people think. I would also expect Kyle Trask, to prob- if I were betting on it, to, to be starting or taking that first snap. But again, the anticipation uh, for 2020 is for the offense to kind of look, as, as far as the QB position goes, kind of the way it did in 2019, but probably just in a, in a, in a way that just makes a little bit more sense or that you're getting probably a lot more out of Emory Jones. Uh, particularly in the run game and in the passing game, because we saw him open up the playbook playbook a bit more for Jones, where he was throwing the ball a little bit more frequently in games, and he was doing well. And so I, I thought that that was a good sign for for Jones's future. And so in short, you know, I kind of expected two QB system in 2020, just a little bit more of Emory Jones. All right, Will Salmon, giving you all the info you need to know from the six six two and the three five two. Thank you so much, Will. I appreciate it, Andy. Thanks for having me on, man. Hello, Andy Staples Show listeners. The Athletics College football team is going to be live in New Orleans for the College Football Playoff National Championship. You can join us all Saturday, January 11th at the House of Blues in New Orleans for live episodes of The Audible with Bruce and Stu. And this show right here, The Andy Staples Show. You can be live in the audience. Maybe I take one of your questions. Maybe I make fun of you. Maybe we dance, maybe we sing. Who knows? Both shows will feature interviews with special guests and Q&A sessions with some of the brightest minds in college football. It is going to be a lot of fun. Get your tickets now. You can go to theathletic.com slash houseofblues or you can click the link in the show notes. Make sure you get your tickets in advance because we are expecting the show to sell out. Because who wouldn't want to see Bruce and Stu live with me as the opening act? It'll be awesome. 